The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Welcome everyone to the Provoke Media Podcast. We are recording this in Davos. I'm joined by Tata Consulting Services Chief Marketing and Communications Officer for Global Markets, Abhinav Kumar. Abhinav, how are you? I'm very well, Aaron. What a, what a pleasure to meet you here again at Davos. Um, I guess it's the last day of Davos, so yeah. it's been quite an exciting uh, period here. Same for you. So looking forward to our conversation. Indeed, and I think this is, you know, we've done several of these podcasts in Davos. So I'm always interested to hear your view on the week. And also this is effectively my last engagement, my last interview of the week. Maybe it's yours as well. Um, so hopefully you have some, some insights, some reflections on the week gone by. You're a Davos veteran. How many um, times have you been up the magic mountain now? Um, it's my 15th year at Davos. Okay. So um, yes, I mean, you can, can say veteran, but there are a lot of people here who've been here 20 years, 25 years, 30 years. Um, but yeah, 15 years is not too shabby. Uh, I guess uh, in one sense, a lot of us got an extra point in because um, this year they've sort of, in the last six months, there have been two Davoses. There was a there was the reopening of the forum in May, mm-hmm. which was a very inter- interesting experience because um, that took place during summer. So a very different uh, topography, a very different um, yeah. visual. And, you know, we did a lot of uh, meetings outdoors because the sun was shining, the hills were green. Now we're here in a frigid Davos. Um, it's minus, it's yeah. minus 15. It's minus 15 outside on it's yeah. Thursday night um, and it's freezing. And, so I hope people listening to this feel really sorry for us because that's often how people feel for, for people in Davos. Yeah. I think, um, you know, and, and since we are talking about uh, communications and all of that, I think the thing about Davos is that people who've never been to Davos have a certain perception about it. Um, Even people who've is, been to Davos have a certain perception about <laughs> well, it. Perception is very, but especially those who've never been to yeah. Davos have this perception that it's, you know, it's, it's the global elite mm-hmm. gathering in the place having caviar and uh, drinks and, and partying. But let me tell you, I think for most people who come in here, it's well, a grueling week. It's grueling. It's hard. It's, grueling. it's really hard work. And hmm. I don't know about you, but I've never partied at Davos. Yeah, I mean, you know, even if you look at the typical CEO who comes in here, right? Yeah. Their days probably starts at 4 or 5 a.m. in the morning because they have to go for an early breakfast session where they're speaking. Yeah. They have, I don't know, 20 meetings in a day, half an hour. It's like speed dating on steroids for business. Uh, they do media interviews and then in the evening they need to go to some receptions and those receptions are not places where you just go and sit and have a drink it's more it's again more networking right it's, 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 you, it's you're intense. on you're you're on the whole time yeah. and everyone kind of wants to know what your story is correct um, and so it, in a way it's it's quite uh, it, it's grueling from a physical perspective but even from a kind of mental perspective I, I find it's yeah. you know it takes a toll on people you can see it today we're at the end of Thursday and you see a lot of, you know, thousand yard stairs out there. And I think, you know, some of the hardest working people at Davos, of course, there are a lot of people who work hard here. The security staff who's keeping everyone safe, um, everyone in the hotel and the catering side. But the profession which probably works the hardest here are journalists, right? There uh, there are about seven or eight hundred journalists, reporting journalists here. Every news organization is here. And they have um, killer schedules because, um, you know, Davos for media organization is like shooting fish in a barrel in terms of getting the rich content interviews they want. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also also kind of means there's no break. They, you're you're completely on. You're you're doing interviews, 
Also, you're changing the venues because some shots are in the studios, a lot of shots outdoors in the snow because you get those great visuals. So your body yeah, is subject to a lot of, you know, the minus 15 degrees and then you're in inside at maybe 25 degrees. There's a lot of change in that. You're sleep deprived. Um, I can tell you that, you know, some of our executives, when I looked at their schedule, yeah. they had 10 minutes or 15 minutes slot left for lunch each day, yeah, right? It's, it's that busy. It's, it's, it's hard work. I mean, I'll say two things. I'll say, mm -hmm. first of all, as a journalist, yes, it's really hard. I mean, you, there are so many events as well on the, on the fringe. So yeah. In addition to the Congress Center, often journalists are, are moderating events and you're having to file yeah. copy or, or produce video or, or whatever it is. And that adds another layer. And I was in the media, I've been in the media center in, mm -hmm. the, in the media village uh, every day actually this week and it's not a, it's not a pretty sight in there. You know, people yeah. are, are working hard and they look exhausted. But having said all that, I think it's, you know, it's very hard to get people to, to feel, somehow feel sorry for you. No, for I'm all not the hard saying sorry. I'm just saying there's a different perception Davos. of what people think. Yeah. People do at Davos and what sure. they actually do. Yeah. Uh, I don't think there are too many people here, the rest of the world can or should feel sorry for because yeah. most of the people who are present here are in privileged positions very of, privileged. Uh, of authority and power. Yeah. Yeah. But um, on the same time, I think it's fantastic that at the start of the year, you get such uh, a concentrated gathering of business, government, media, academia, civil society leaders mm -hmm. who are able to exchange notes, um, get to understand each other better, get a sentiment of what is going on in different regions of the world. Mm -hmm. um, and in some cases, you know, come together and create collaboration on issues which they, they, they hold in common. Whatever it is, it could be in terms of um, inclusion issues, it could be dealing with um, the climate crisis we have at hand, it could be small groupings talking about their geopolitical pressures and tensions they're under, or you know, it could be corporate groups talking about how do we eliminate um, uh, the use of uh, plastics inside the supply chain or whatever it is. There's so much of that going on at the start of the year. This one is also special because you know, with the last three uh, years with the pandemic, um, the annual meeting at Davos was not not possible. Of course, it started in May, but the May meeting was much smaller than yeah. this. This is the first winter Davos, the first big Davos since first big Davos back 2020. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about the perception of Davos. This is a conversation we've had pretty much every year since I, since yes. I first came to Davos. Yes. This is my ninth Davos. Um, and, you know, I remember writing a, a story way back about Davos has a PR problem. And when you look at the coverage this year, from the journalists, from, from mm -hmm. I, mean, I wouldn't say from every journalist, but in general, that kind of sort of sentiment. <clears throat> Do you think it accurately reflects the reality on the ground here? I haven't had time to see the coverage, right? I think <laughs> okay. that's the other challenge when people... It's uh, very diplomatically answered. <laughs> no, honestly, people, you know, write to me saying, have you seen the email or, oh, did you read this article? And I say, no, because we've been on meeting to meeting to event to um, conversation to this thing. So. Okay. Um, I think, again, the media does a fantastic job of making sure that whatever happens in Davos doesn't stay in Davos, that the rest of the world gets to know about it. But those sitting here don't have the time to consume. I think probably next week is where you'll go back and consume or even process much of... We're also under a lot of cognitive overload, right? There are a lot of sessions, as you said. I think there are four or 500 sessions inside the Congress Center. And outside the Congress Center, the private sessions tend to be about three or four X of that. They're probably, uh, I think, I don't know, uh, 1,200, 1,300 sessions taking place outside. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of very rich uh, conversations and, 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 and then I think it takes time to process it. Yeah. But in terms of Davos having a PR problem, um, yes, I mean, that's, that's something uh, I guess the forum's media team is very well aware of. Uh, 
it's it's always the case in today's world um i think businesses or governments and all do realize that uh, they are under increased scrutiny they are under increased pressure um there is um and and therefore i think that's all the more reason why they need to make an extra effort mm. to communicate um what they're doing be more transparent about it and i think in that sense um a lot of things have become more transparent right i mean every almost most of the key sessions in davos are live broadcast mm-hmm. uh, a lot of what the companies do if you look at social media you know whatever any company is doing they're pushing it out there mm-hmm. right and talking about it so people can look at it and gauge and see okay why are these people here they're not out there skiing or mm-hmm. sitting and having champagne or whatever it is but they're working on all of these issues yeah but i do think sometimes mm-hmm. um So first of all, just come back coming back to the the the, the point about media coverage and, and so maybe you haven't seen much of it this week. But you know, in the run up to Davos, there was um there was focus on the fact that there were fewer heads of states hmm. attending this year. Um a lot of criticism from from politicians in the US for example. I mean that we've hmm. seen that gather pace through the years that Davos is is for the elites. It's an elite playground and um it, you know, it doesn't reflect the uh the kind of aspirations and hopes and dreams of 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 working people but i think i think sometimes when even even the corporates are being transparent about what they're doing here i do, i i i believe they are um it still seems incongruous sometimes at a time when people are really struggling and you know when there's inflationary pressures and when there's war um that you know people are spent are spending huge sums of money to come up here um uh, and to attend in in some cases to attend receptions to to go to panels um and i do i do i kind of get the feeling that um uh davos has is is grappling with with more threats to its reputation than than it did you know a decade ago hmm so interesting i think one of the questions a lot of people asking themselves or even even i get asked here is is, is davos as a platform getting less relevant right mm-hmm. i think that was a question which came and and a lot of companies were reflecting on that before they decided to come back and participate here and i'll give you my view i mean mm-hmm. people may have very different views about it i think given where we see the world headed mm-hmm. especially after the last 3 years with the pandemic with the with the war in ukraine with mm-hmm. you know so many geopolitical tensions with um, economic issues with extreme climate and other things um a lot of these problems are very global in nature and the point is if the world is getting more uh, the the topic of um, this year's davos is collaboration in a in a fragmented world and if the world is getting more fragmented then uh, it's very difficult to deal with global challenges on a fragmented basis it needs you know people to kind of come together and in that sense um, davos as a platform perhaps to me is more relevant than it's ever been before because it is a neutral common ground where um a lot of uh, institutions again whether it's business or government i mean your point on the government side that there was something that not enough government uh, bodies are here i'm sure the forum can give you some statistics there are a lot of head of governments a lot of ministers here mm-hmm. from our point of view um, for example just two nights ago we went to the um, belgian reception the belgian prime minister were here mm-hmm. and they were talking a lot about the industrialization uh, policy and what should europe do to react to um, uh to the to the recent measures that the US has taken in terms of um uh, greening its economy and 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 all of that so 
definitely the Belgian Prime Minister there. India, India has had a big presence uh, this year. It's always been ramping up its presence India at Davos. India is, is dominating this year. I yeah, think. so so a lot of Indian companies. I think India mm -hmm. always has the top uh, two or three delegations at Davos. Um, there are more than a hundred official delegates. Mm -hmm. uh, the government has sent a strong contingent. There were um, three cabinet ministers: the Minister for IT, um, the Minister for Child and Women Development, the Minister of Health. Um, were leading the delegations and then many of the Indian states are present here. Yeah. So they're chief ministers and other things. Um, of course, they're looking at investment, but they're engaging in so many topics and issues. Mm. Um, so yes, the big name, the prime minister perhaps was not here. He came here a few years ago. But there are, I think, um, and in a sense, that's not too bad because often the focus is too much on the big name coming here, right? Mm. President Trump was right. at Davos or uh, right. Prime Minister Modi was at Davos. So, you know, a few years ago, there was a lot of buzz about President Xi from China being here at Davos, which is important and that's good. But in many ways, I think at times when countries send a ministerial delegation, which is actually engaging with, like if you look at the Indian minister's agenda, they have engaged in so many of these small community group meetings or spoken in so many panels and other things. So they've had very meaningful engagements. Mm. Business world is fully here. Um, as I said, this year, there are 2,800 delegates at Davos. Uh, I believe in 2020, before the pandemic, which was the last winter Davos which took place, mm -hmm. there were about 3,000. So it's 200 less, but bear in mind, Arun, that um, uh, firstly, there are some changes to Davos this year. Firstly, um, um, the, the invitation to de delegates from Russia was not extended, so there's nobody from Russia here. China, of course, is dealing with a very difficult situation related to the to COVID back at home, so it has, um, you know, people made choices not to come. Yeah. So if you take that out, actually the rest of the world is here and actually more than it was before. Mm -hmm. And one of the things you know, we always try to take value from Davos is to just get a sense of the sentiment on what's happening in different parts of the world and what are companies and businesses thinking. And while the headline might carry a lot of um, negativity perhaps on a looming recession and challenges and issues, in the one-on-one -on -one conversation people, the mood is um, in a sense positive mm -hmm. and, and a little more upbeat. And I think people are very happy to again come back and connect with each other. You go out in the promenade, you see a lot of people um, hugging each other because they haven't seen each other in three years. So yeah. I think at the human to human level, that connection is being made. And in a sense, that is so important because if you want to deal with a fragmented world, you need more platforms which bring people together so that we can work on our common challenges. Yeah, and I think the one thing that often gets lost in the coverage of Davos, and I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the criticisms of Davos, but I think the one thing that often gets lost is just how many NGOs and civil society yeah. organizations yes. are here and how important it is for them. If you speak to them, they will say, this is the only and chance we get they to, do. They do, to because talk to governments, to talk to business, yeah. and, and for, it's critical, actually. Yeah. A lot them. of them have their voices heard. A lot of yeah. them have private conversations. There are many who are here um, raising funds, uh, and, and this becomes an important place for them to have those conversations. The other thing, it's also from a from a from a you know a nonprofit point of view and a cause-based organization point of view, it's also a great platform to kind of announce something. Mm -hmm. So they are businesses and CEOs um, who want to, and also in some cases want to be seen mm -hmm. to be doing things on on issues which they want, and this becomes a great platform to announce whatever it is that they're making a fifty million or hundred million dollar investment on. And preserving the oceans, or doing, uh, or, or 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 towards reforesting initiatives, some of it is some of it is driven by the forum, but actually a lot of it is not. A lot of it is yeah. private initiatives. Uh, yeah. And then of course uh, some civil organizations come here to express their voice and dissent and uh, so, so forth. Um, and that's in a sense uh, it's welcome, right? Because it's important to keep 
the conversations um, honest. It's important to have an inclusive view from the world here. Mm. So two questions for you. Uh, one, perhaps more strategic, and, mm -hmm. and one more about uh, communications. So let's do the um, communications one first. You talked about all the things mm -hmm. that get announced here. Doesn't it make it really hard to get any kind of cut through as a communicator when there's so many things being announced? So, um, you know, when it comes to communications, we're not sure if Davos is the best <laughs> moment and place in the world to communicate or it's actually the worst yeah. because it has that dichotomy. As I said, there, um, there are about seven or 800 reporting journalists and, and another, another 200, um, you know, publishers or owners of media and all present here. So it's the biggest media presence anywhere at any moment of time in the world, wow. right? Um, so they're here. If you want to get your message out, every media is here. Mm. Uh, since so many of them are here, they're also competing with each other for content, mm -hmm. etc. There is there is an opportunity to kind of project it out. At the same time, there is so much which is going out. Mm. The ability to stand out and and um, I don't know, it's it's difficult. Mm -hmm. I, I always say Davos is the in one sense, the worst place in the world to do a press release, because your press release, your your you know, or or a major announcement, unless it's something massive and significant, uh, it's very difficult for it to stand out because there's so much which is yeah. going out from here. Yeah, I, I don't think there's any real solution to that, right? And I'm, I'm, I'm sure if you I, had one, I mean, the you solution would've... is 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 for it's. I think it's a challenge to the communications profession. Yeah. The, the solution is okay. So you got 800 journalists here. Anyone you want to target is, is sitting here. Mm. And, um, but guess what? The rest of the world is also here and they're yeah. also pushing their message. Yeah, yeah. How do you stand out? This is, this is your and challenge. And you've got a, a very attention and sleep deprived press corps here who are, you know, sure. they're getting bombarded by everything. Okay, and then the final question for you is, yes. is Davos more about um, solving problems or more about deal making? I mean, I, I, I'm not so sure about the deal-making part of it, mm -hmm. right? I think there is this perception that a lot of deals and other things get done in Davos. Mm -hmm. um, I can give you a perspective from our side, right? Mm -hmm. So from the TCS point of view, Davos is really valuable because we meet so many people. Mm -hmm. So we meet, uh, you know, between our various executives who are here, uh, I think we do about 100 one-on-one -on -one meetings. Each meeting is about 30 minutes or so. Mm -hmm. And that's bilats, at the top. Hmm? Hundred bilats. Hundred bilateral meetings, mm -hmm. and that's at the top level. It's it's the CEO or the chairperson of 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 a major client whom we're doing a lot of business with. But are they sitting and signing contracts? No, they're sitting and having a discussion. Some of it could be operationally about the business. A lot of it could be just exchanging um, notes and whatever it is. But what it does is really it builds trust. It builds a relationship. The fact that you you know you're meeting in a in a. a environment outside of the regular zone um, it's 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 a different conversation it's a different way to connect um, it's almost in a sense like you know you go to a common community center and then you feel part of that family and other things right so it builds the relationship but um, yeah. we don't sign a lot of deals here mm. but does the trust and the relations we build here go on down the line and and result in some kind of uplift to our business sure yeah. absolutely is it about solving problems, your other question? Um, I think in many ways, yes, uh, because it brings people together who can be parts of the solution to the problem. But is the, solu is, is, is the solution being crafted here this week in Davos? I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, you know, let's say, I'm take the example of there's a conflict in some part of the world. Mm -hmm. And um, 
you can get certain parties together here to talk about what should we be doing this year to solve it. Mm -hmm. But it's not like they're creating a whiteboard and creating a master plan. Mm -hmm. They're having some discussion on it, but this, it doesn't end here. It probably starts here at the start of the year, mm -hmm. but there are many other engagements and other things which, which kind of goes towards putting it together. So end of the day, Davos is a platform. I think mm -hmm. different people use it in different ways, um, but it being here is, is, is really uh, something which, which provides value to the world. It definitely provides value to the world because anything which builds better understanding, which brings us together more as a planet, which, which, which helps us focus on our global um, challenges mm -hmm. with global coalitions to deal with them, is welcome. And, and, and the fact that there's so much scrutiny on Davos, we started with that in the conversation on does it have a perception problem? Mm -hmm. Does it get criticism? Is there scrutiny? is good because anyone who's here needs to go back and, as you said, um, Davos is, is, is a high investment place to be in, okay? It's, uh, it the companies spend a lot of money coming here, building up lounges, um, having a presence here, all of those things. And you're under scrutiny that when you go back that, okay, you made that investment, was it worth your while or not? Yeah. And they need to justify that. And scrutiny is always good because it forces you to take actions which are in the interest of your stakeholders. Absolutely. The more sunlight, the mm. better. Can, can, I, can I put a question back to you? Before oh, sure. You yeah, yeah, absolutely. Turn the so tables. So this year, yeah, always prefer like turning the tables on our, our friends in uh, the media. The, um, the question to you, so if you look back at the last um, few days here, this, mm. this uh, uh, week at Davos, what's been the standout highlight moment for you here? Oh, gosh, that's really putting me on the spot. Uh, let me think. I've learned through. from the best from you. Yeah, yeah you have. <laughs> you really have. Um, I mean, I, I think the, the roundtable we did, I really enjoyed. Yes, I would we say. A, yeah. We did a. We had you know ten top global CCOs come together, mm -hmm. and in, what I thought was very interesting about it is, yes, there's a lot of talk in Davos about issues and trends, and, and we're all aware of that, but they were talking about the craft uh, of comms and how that yeah, changes yeah. and how it's reshaped. So that was. Um, I mean, that was a real highlight for me, yeah, for I think sure. For the audience, just to give a little more context on it, yeah. um, Arun and um, uh, Jonathan, who's the Jonathan chief, from IBM, chief, and yeah, Chris Perry from, from IBM, Weber Shanvik. Chris Perry from Weber Shanvik hosted yeah. a roundtable for, there were about 10 or 11 of us, yeah, 11, chief communications yeah. officers, yeah. talking about our profession, exchanging notes on how we are structuring, how we're dealing with the challenges in the profession, um, sharing examples from each other. And I think, again, that is a microcosm of what's the value of Davos, because if you looked at this community which came together here, they were from different parts of the world, different businesses, some were competitors, some are um, partners, some are clients. Yeah. Um, is there any other place where you can get this grouping together very easily? No. Not this group? No, no not a global group like this. Yes. No, impossible. No, you get regional groups together, yeah, but this you, global you group could, like this is rare. Impossible. So that was a stand-up, but if, if maybe that's, you know, obviously that's kind of, I've got a vested interest in saying that. Um, I think, so maybe beyond that, I would say I did, um, I'm not a, a huge metaverse acolyte. Hmm. Uh, I have been quite disillusioned mm -hmm. with its rollout as a marketing tool and, and its engagement numbers and its return on investment. But I did the metaverse uh, demo that Accenture is running, I think, yeah. in conjunction with Microsoft. And um, I, it, it was very impressive, actually, what I, what I saw. Now, I don't know if it's... How, what the numbers look like, because that's always the big question yeah. with these technologies. But the possibilities and the use cases um, are very interesting. So, and that, that's the kind of thing I don't and, think I would and, have seen anywhere else. And, and I think that's also, in one sense, the, the kind of value of Davos is mm. you can have so, 
you can choose the track you want. You have so many different experiences and conversations to have, right? Yeah. So you can choose a, a, a completely a track on, on energy transition and climate, and there's, 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 there's a million sessions for you to attend or do or work in those communities. Sure. You're talking about the metaverse, I mean, the crypto and the blockchain communities here in a big way, and they, have, they are running parallel Davos in many sense, yeah. and, and, and so on and so forth. You have regional communities kind of come in and come together. There are a lot of um, countries from the Middle East here, for example. Um, Saudi Arabia, UAE, and others have massive lounges and experiences and other things. Um, yeah. I think there is, there, there is a lot here. And uh, in a sense, I think one of the best things that anyone coming to Davos can do is, is expose themselves to events and sessions which are outside what they normally do. Yeah. Because then you learn something new, like metaverse, right? You said this, uh, that you've sort of looked at it skeptic with skepticism. Yeah. Um, but by participating in something like this, maybe it's changed your mind a little bit. And, and yeah. I think that, that, is, that is fantastic. Yeah, I w you know, it's given me a different, it's given me just more of an appreciation for the technology. Yeah. I, I think yeah. we still need to see how it plays out in reality. I mean, the thing with Davos is, is crazy is that I'm just thinking through what I've done this week. So I, I, I went to a session with... Like my, I said, you're going to process what happened this week, next week, not mad, before that. It's isn't it? So I went to a session on Tuesday mm -hmm. with the Microsoft CEO, uh, Satya Nadella. Yeah. And you know, that feels like ages ago. But that, that was really interesting as well, because he was talking about AI. Um, and then one more highlight I will say to you is just actually being able to reconnect with people, because you know, I haven't seen so many of them for three years. So that's always... Uh, there's no substitute for that, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Zoom calls and team calls um, were great in keeping the world together during the pandemic. But I think you talk to anyone, mm -hmm. people are delighted to be here yeah. just to connect on a human to human level. And I think that's so important um, on every sphere. Yeah. Abhinav, thanks so much. Um, always a pleasure to have you involved uh, in our podcast and at our events and safe travels. Thanks, Arun, and safe travels. I'm sure the flights back home are going to be filled with sleep deprived people. Um, you know, sleeping away. But um, yeah, yeah uh, and uh, uh, you know, wish you and, and and the fantastic team at Provoke Media the very best for the year ahead. I know you have a great series of events and other things coming up, and look forward to being part of those too. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm here in Davos with Brian Lott, Chief Communications Officer at Mubadla Investment Company. Brian. How are you doing? Arun, I'm great. It's been a busy week, a snowy and cold week here, but mm -hmm. uh, full of activity for our Mubadala delegation and uh, all of us in the profession. Yeah, it's a big presence here from not just Mubadala, but from the, the Middle East region in general. Perhaps, uh, you know, it's a sign of the, the changing times mm -hmm. in which we live, and, and that may, may well form part of this conversation. But first of all, before we get into that, what, what do you get out of being in, in Davos as a professional communicator? So I think it's a couple things for, for our company, right? And we're really sort of in charge of bringing the delegation here. Mm -hmm. It's making sure they have a high quality experience. I mean, Davos is such an efficient place for our executives to have meetings with their partners and, and prospects. So making sure that goes well is kind of assignment one. Mm -hmm. uh, the second is giving them access to tell the Mobadala story. In, uh, in platforms both from the stage as well as in uh, media opportunities they have here. And then for me, what I find amazing is just to see uh, what the sort of storyline is macroeconomically coming into Davos, how it fluctuates from day to day based on what the journalists who are here uh, you know, absorb through both formal and informal dialogue, mm -hmm. and then kind of how that 
either stays consistent throughout the week or shifts because it often, as we've seen in the last two or three years, sets the tone for, uh, for the, the sort of capitalist uh, narrative uh, for the rest of the year. Indeed. Um, yeah, and it, it, is, it has been, you know, there is a certain amount of negativity, I think it's fair to say, uh, around not just this Davos, but every Davos, particularly in terms of some of the media coverage you read. Do you feel that sense of, uh, you know, a, a sort of downbeat sense is actually shared on the ground here? I don't think so. I mean, I think the, there's, a, there's a probably in some small way justified cynicism, the idea of, uh, uh, of a lot of uh, corporate entities and NGOs all coming together in this tiny town to make decisions on behalf of the world. I mean, that, you, you can see why people maybe misunderstand it that way. I think the, the, if you look at the track record over the 50 plus years that the forum has been held, mm -hmm. some of the concrete agreements that have come out of it, you know, the G20 among others, mm -hmm. and you see or are part of the conversations that happen between partners around things like climate change, around things like the Sustainable Development Goals, you actually see it's, it's a much richer uh, quilt of people who come here, and the dialogues are actually pretty substantive. It's not just a, uh, uh, an opportunity to show off, so to speak, for a lot of the corporates, but it's really meant to, to move the ball in ways that are productive. Yeah. So you're also, of course, chair of the Page Society. Um, and Paige held an event here the other evening with The Economist editor, mm. Zanny Minton Bedders. Uh, what were your takeaways from that? So Paige is really interested in this concept of stakeholder capitalism, mm. right? That uh, the purpose of a corporation is not just to make money, mm. but it's to actually have a larger responsibility to society. Mm. And I think that that segues nicely with the Davos agenda and always has. Yeah. Um, you know, companies are being uh, pressured all over the world uh, to speak up on behalf of their employees, on behalf of their customers, on behalf of their shareholders and other stakeholders. And I think the opportunity here is to really understand what that means, mm. right? You've got terms like ESG, you've got uh, questions particularly in the West mm -hmm. and in the U.S. Uh, around diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, what, what geography you're from um, may have a different uh, interpretation of what those, what those yeah. mean. And you know, a lot of the companies today are, are struggling with three things. One, certainly first and foremost, the energy transition, uh, exacerbated by, by the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, two, a question of what governments are doing to uh, create a, a sort of stable business environment uh, looking forward. And then three, still coming out of COVID, right? Is Asia opening up and how quickly and what impact is that gonna have on the macro economy? So yeah. it's a great place to come and learn. Mm. So let's talk about stakeholder capitalism and, and what that looks like based perhaps uh, on, on where you live or where you operate. Um, we are seeing companies, even agencies in our sector, uh, being criticized, being scrutinized um, simply for operating in, in a country like Saudi Arabia, mm. for example. Mm. Um, how do you balance the kind of differing expectations there appear to be? when it comes to uh, corporate purpose, corporate activity, um, for someone like you living in the Middle East versus mm. um, some of the scrutiny, some of the criticism that you see in the Western media. Mm. What's really interesting and uh, to me uh, at times disappointing is, mm. the, uh, is the, the, the short article versus the long read about the region, uh, which are often 
um, edited down to a series of cliches about the Middle East that are decades old. Mm-hmm. And uh, particularly in describing you know, the, the dramatic differences, and they are dramatic, between Saudi and the UAE and Oman, mm-hmm. three completely different countries, right, with, yeah. with very different agendas, and yet they all get thrown in as if uh, it's one region that thinks and acts alike. Mm-hmm. So the challenge when you have something like the World Cup is that the region gets painted with a broad brush. Uh, there's no understanding of even the major uh, dynamic uh, that's taking place in a place like Saudi Arabia. I mean, the, the amount of change in that country over the last you know, seven or eight years is really inconceivable in, until you live in the region and go visit Saudi. And then you see uh, things that people still assume that are not correct anymore, that women can't drive, that they can't work, that uh, everyone is, is covered, that there are religious police in the streets monitoring behavior. Uh, those things may have been a thing of 30 or 40 years ago. They're not, they're not true today. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing the, the greater ambition of the region um, come to life in a place like Davos. Um, for the UAE that's uh, taking a leadership role in the energy transition, uh, which is a bit of a surprise or a paradox for a fossil fuel-based economy. Yeah. Uh, but we're host this year to COP28, mm-hmm. uh, which will be a major five-year stock-taking of uh, where things have gone since the Paris Climate Accords, and I think um, has proven its leadership uh, in many ways to investing in renewables, to driving the cost of renewable and other uh, sources of energy that are not uh, carbon-intensive down. Mm-hmm. And you know there there are stories that are, that are nuanced, mm-hmm. uh, so that's that's one sort of category of discussion. Mm-hmm. The other is particularly in our profession, you have corporates that are working globally that are being judged on standards that are different, let's say, mm-hmm. than the U.S. or Western Europe. Yeah. Uh, questions around DEI, for example. Um, particularly in a place, I mean, on, on my team, I'm the diverse one, right, as an Anglo-Saxon white male. Uh, most of my team is female, most of my team is Emirati. Mm-hmm. And so just understanding what that diversity conversation means in a place like the UAE, or in a place like India, or in a place like China, mm-hmm. uh, it's just a different kind of uh, set of rules. And so to, to have that be the uh, standard against which all companies are measured <coughs> It doesn't make sense, and I think one thing that Paige is trying to do is just you know be more global mm. and reflect those differences. Right, because a lot of what we see is is driven by maybe a more Western lens, um, a Western media agenda. Things do look very different um, in different countries. I wanted to ask, in terms of your own experience um, communicating on on behalf of uh, Mubadala, do you find that you're constantly being challenged? in terms of the story you're trying to tell, um, and how do you, I suppose, overcome that kind of a challenge? Part of it is just realizing that Mubadala, as one of the more prominent and more global entities in the UAE, mm-hmm. is in many ways an ambassador for the country. Mm-hmm. So we go to extra lengths to try and tell the UAE story. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of our relationships with our business partners um, go back years. So they, they've been to Abu Dhabi, they understand what Mubadal is, uh, but many of their employees may not, many of their stakeholders may not. So I think our CEO is a great sort of evangelist for the company's uh, story. It's 50 plus year history, how it's evolved, 
how it's gone from one of the least developed countries in the world to one of the most developed countries in the world, uh, and its role in the world and its responsibility. Uh, that's something he doesn't take lightly. Mm -hmm. And as a commercial entity operating all over the world, we, we take that very seriously. Mm -hmm. And I think our core purpose is, as an investment company, of course, to be financially sustainable. Uh, but more and more, the Mobadala purpose is interwoven with the the larger strategic values of the country, which is uh, long-term, looking ahead, understanding issues like the energy transition and making the world a, a more sustainable place from an energy standpoint. Um, you know, there, there are, in a country blessed with hydrocarbon wealth now, there's an urgency to diversify uh, away from fossil fuels, and that was sort of the origin story of Mubadala. Mm -hmm. Uh, but with that comes a responsibility for the region that may not have those resources, Africa, Southeast India, uh, you know, other parts of the Middle East, uh, Egypt, Lebanon, mm -hmm. that are um, demographically challenged with producing new jobs and, and new industries and new sectors. Mm -hmm. So uh, part of our responsibility is uh, to look at ways we can invest in those sectors that will help shape you know, the next hundred years, not just mm. the next ten years. Yeah. Your, your CEO is uh, chairman of Manchester City Football Club yes. as well. H has that helped in terms of, um, I guess, maybe building a, a certain amount of institutional knowledge and confidence of how to deal with mm. uh, uh, perhaps a, a rather more intrusive media culture than you might be used to at home? I think it's, uh, he doesn't talk about this much, but my mm. observation is that it has made him uh, just a better uh, spokesperson in, in answering questions on behalf of the country, but it's also exposed him to a, an aggressive uh, media landscape that he probably wouldn't if he had just stayed only in his Mubadala role. Um, and I think that has helped him understand and appreciate, look, it's the, it's the job of the media to ask tough questions as long as they're fair and honest. Uh, and in, in ways that other executives probably in the Emirates and in the region haven't been exposed to, yeah. it's given him, I think, a confidence to do right. uh, Q&As and, and do them live and not be worried if he gets a curveball question because he's ready to answer it, yeah. which is great. It's probably a lesson there for other executives in, that, in the region, right? Because I think sometimes um, it's difficult to know how to deal with a, with a, with a more aggressive media unless you actually just start dealing with it regularly, right? I, I think so, and, I, and there's no, uh, I mean, as you know better than anyone, if you feel confident in your story and you've got something positive mm -hmm. uh, to say and you've had some interaction, there's no uh, benefit in shying away from it, right? Mm -hmm. There's credibility in, in taking on hard questions and answering them honestly and with transparency. Mm -hmm. And, you know, look, uh, Institutions are flawed. Countries have challenges, both east and west. You know, we're seeing uh, the political structures in, in places like uh, the U.S. and the U.K. go through massive, massive pressure. Yeah. And so the, the perfection standard is not what it might have been um, many years ago. So, so no one has anything to be uh, afraid of in terms of answering questions for, for, uh, for organizational structures that are slightly different. Mm -hmm. uh, there are issues in, in those countries and important ones that need to be addressed and, mm -hmm. and with some degree of confidence uh, those questions I think could be answered in the right way. Do you think there is, uh, you know, that when we talk about the narrative in terms of the Middle East that you often see in the Western media, is it fueled by resentment at all? 
Probably. I mean, I think the economic environment for the Middle East, because of the energy situation, is more positive than anywhere else in the world. Mm -hmm. And you start to see a kind of residual edge to stories mm -hmm. about uh, <coughs> Middle Eastern billionaires yeah. buying football clubs. Well, you know, most of the football clubs are owned by billionaires. They're not all from the Middle East. In fact, most of them are not. But yeah. you don't see the same kind of ethnographic attachment that you do or demographic attachment that you do uh, to when you have someone from the Middle East go and buy a, a major Premier League football team or, or a sports outlet in the U.S., for example. Mm -hmm. So I think part of it is resentment. Part of it is just a, um, a deep-seated narrative that has to change. Um, I've never lived in China, but I've been there, but I've never lived there. And if you talk to people who have spent a good deal of time, I mean, I've never lived in China, I've been there on work. But if you talk to people from uh, different parts of the world who are engaged uh, in, the, uh, in, in Chinese society and who work for businesses there, you know, you'll find the same complaint that, that a country that's so big and vibrant is, uh, is painted with a broad brush of being uh, monolithic and closed to the West and uncommercial. Um, it's just, I think, a, a shift that will continue in this century as we see uh, India become the largest nation on earth, uh, as China reopens after COVID, uh, as globalization takes on a new face, mm -hmm. that, uh, that, that, that West first narrative for a lot of the international media is gonna go through a, a massive amount of change. Yeah, and you know, I, I certainly, um, I, I look forward to a day where, where the world isn't necessarily covered from that West first narrative, but as someone who lives in China, I actually appreciate the fact that there are media out there willing to ask hard questions because it's not something that happens so much in China, mm, you mm, see what I mean? Yeah. And I suspect you have a similar kind of situation in the Middle East. So if you, if you look at it from that perspective, are there things that perhaps Middle Eastern companies, executives can do to tell their own story better? I think so. I mean, I, there's nothing wrong with a hard question, mm. right? I, I don't think uh, the act of asking a question is, is uh, something that should be uh, seen as a crit criticism, if you will, uh, if you've got a good answer. And I think there are more, more and more uh, executives and, to a certain degree, government officials that are, that are willing to have those uh, mm -hmm. conversations as, as media becomes more democratic. Mm -hmm. And as younger generations going through this substantial amount of change are, um, are asking, you know, the right questions about the future of their countries. So, you know, to me it's... Um, it is uh, part of the evolution of the media landscape and what we define it as, you know, um, the, the idea of no comment uh, on certain questions that may come from a, a major uh, Western media institution uh, has always been something I've never liked, yeah. right? Uh, there are certain things maybe you can't comment on because they're government policy or they're too uh, confidential, uh, but in general, I think the, the demand by younger employees in the next generation just to be more forthcoming in some issues, more um, open about uh, the plans for the country, where, where things are going, um, is going to be a necessity. I mean, you're seeing some of these pressures in, in certain countries, uh, like Iran, for example, where this younger generation is really uh, asking for more, right? And, uh, 
I don't think that's going to change. I, mean, I think we're just headed to a, a completely new century where governments and other institutions, private sector companies are going to have to be more responsive to what uh, generations are looking for. Yeah, and I'd say the same is true in Asia. Um, okay, last thing really quickly because I know you don't have much time. As uh, you're, you're an American mm. um, living in the Middle East, also chair of PAGE. What's your one piece of advice to um, you know, uh, uh, the CCO of US-based multinationals when it comes to um, better understanding uh, the kind of stakeholder challenges and issues that arise thousands of miles away? Yeah, I think you've really got to get out and go be with your teams in those countries and really listen and understand what their challenges are. Um, you know, one of the hardest parts about our, our jobs as they become more global is just finding time, right? Because we're always on now with our devices. Uh, the, the global nature of, um, of media and uh, employee communications and supporting businesses um, never really shuts off anymore, just given the advance of technology. So you really have to carve out time, go spend it with colleagues who are in places you're not likely to visit necessarily. Um, if you work in an industry, uh, don't go to the headquarters, go to, you know, go to an operations site and really understand what the challenges are of the business. I think that's just invaluable. Mm. Brian, thanks so much. Um, it's been great to see you this week. Um, mm. and, it's been uh, great to talk, yeah. yeah indeed, I hope I, I hope I see you again. Sometime soon, um, and safe travels. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, this is Arun Sudhaman, Editor-in-Chief of Provoke Media, uh, and I'm recording this podcast here at the World Economic Forum in Davos with Jill Khoury, who's the Chief Marketing Officer at HCL Tech. Jill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Arun. I How appreciate you coming to our, our pavilion here. It's a pleasure to be here. It's my first time here. I always like a pavilion that has multiple floors. I think that's we, always... We had the same pavilion in May and loved it, uh, and we're happy to be back. Very good. How is your week going so far in Davos? I know we're only two days in. It's action-packed, mm -hmm. um, cold, but sunny today. Um, no, it's been really fantastic. I have spent a lot of time personally with uh, a number of clients, partners, and a, a number of NGOs. Uh, again, it's only, it's only a day and a half in so far. But the quality of conversation has been excellent. I think just reportedly there are more than 3,000 people here this week. I was here in May and it was um, less attended, but the weather was better. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say that there is, what I'm seeing uh, more conversation on this year is just the overall topic of women in tech. And mm -hmm. that could be because this year, we um, have, 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 through a partnership, a long-standing partnership with the UN Women, mm -hmm. we've allowed them to take part of the space in our pavilion mm -hmm. to host their uh, gender equality hub. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of women in tech who are stopping by to talk to the UN Women. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I've been fortunate enough to meet them, and, and we had a, a panel discussion here in the pavilion this morning. Um, hosted by UN Women with Microsoft, Ericsson, myself, and, and another NGO. And I think there is a lot of optimism and activity about ensuring that women are much more prominent in the conversation around tech, and frankly, much more prominent in their presence here at the World Eco Economic Forum. Mm -hmm. So that's one of my, my key learnings. Um, a lot of our, our um, hyperscaler partners are here, like Amazon, Google, 
um, Microsoft, and I've also spent time with a number of our clients and our, our CEO and our chairperson are here, and their schedule is just action-packed. And, and so I think there's just there was just an appetite for everybody to reconvene. May was great. May didn't have, as I'm sure you know, um, anywhere near the presence from Asia. A lot of people were still standing back in, in May. So I think um, you know, we're seeing a lot more participation from some of our global clients who also have a presence in APAC. Indeed. Um, you are 18 months into your job at HCL Tech. Uh, and you have unveiled a new positioning, supercharging progress. So I wondered if you could perhaps explain that a little bit and tell us how that came about. Yeah. Well, part of the reason that our CEO, CV Jayakumar, and um, our chairperson of the board, Roshni Nader Maholtra, brought me here was they really wanted to up HCL Tech's positioning on the global scale, and especially given about 60 to 65 percent of our work is from clients based in the U.S. and Western Europe. And for the most part, we've been relatively quiet as a brand. We had a, um, a lot of our business comes through referrals and comes through clients who, who move around. They usually like to take us with them because mm -hmm. there's a high degree of client satisfaction. But clients or companies who didn't know us um, and went to went online to do research or asked others who are in the broad space who had never worked with us, we were not in that consideration set. So there was a high degree of interest to bring into the company an individual who had been a CMO in the services space and ideally worked for another IT services provider. Um, I had come from Accenture where I worked for 14 years and um, HCL Tech does come up against Accenture in um, a number of competitive bids and I think that um, uh, Roshni and CVK um, had a lot of faith in just my learnings over the last 20 years to apply those to really ensure that our brand could play on that global stage. One of the first things that I started looking at in addition to doing um, a lot of quantitative research and spending a lot of time with our clients was paving the way toward what would ultimately be the development of a, a, a macro level positioning line, a new purpose. And at the time, I knew that we were going to do an overhaul of the visual identity. Um, I didn't know exactly what we were going to do with heroing HCL tech ver versus our parent company, which is HCL. Mm -hmm. um, but through that high degree of like trust-based relationship that I had with CVK and Roshni, we really worked on this brand repositioning and purpose together. It was authentically born out of what the company had already been doing over the years and validated by a lot of the quantitative research that we had done, as well as a lot of conversations with clients, as well as our client advisory board. Wow. It led us to an overall positioning, and we worked in partnership with a couple of, of, of very small, really amazing agencies. And when we landed on supercharging progress as that positioning line, this was one where we all knew right away it, it, it worked, it fit, it captured kind of the essence of the passion that exists within this organization. Mm -hmm. And then everything really nicely fell out of that master positioning, which also is our purpose, which is to bring together the best of technology and our people to supercharge progress. Mm -hmm. And that manifests itself 
um, in four key audiences, with our clients, across our organization, or with our people, in the communities where we work and live, and then for the planet at large. Mm -hmm. And of course, the planet at large is a huge topic mm -hmm. here at the World Economic Forum. We've got our global head of sustainability here who joined um, just a, maybe a few months after I joined. Mm -hmm. He's been very active in conversation. And um, we've got Roshni, the, our chairperson and, and CBK, sitting on a number of panels in the Congress Center too. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot, that's a lot of background in a mm -hmm. nutshell uh, on the journey. And um, we launched in late September, so we're still in the mm -hmm. very early stages. But the, the most, I think, amazing thing for me was when we launched in late September, we did it, we had a dual strategy, of course, to launch externally, but to do a staggered launch internally across our organization, 60 countries, 220,000 people. Mm -hmm. uh, and our organization really embraced supercharging progress and they kind of organically made it their own. And there was like a social media takeover. I mean, mm -hmm. everybody wanted to talk about it. We had a series of events all over the world and it has just become it rolls off the tongue and it, it embodies again so much of like the essence of who we are. And honestly, I'm, you know, it's one of the things I'm most proud of mm -hmm. in my career because when you land on something that you just know works mm -hmm. um, and, and as evidenced by the organization taking it up, you know, you know that you've done something special. And it's not often that a, a CMO gets to you know, go through this massive kind of, of brand transformation, so. Yeah, it's quite an opportunity, actually, that yeah. has kind of unfolded for you yeah. um, at HCL Tech. How do, I'm, I'm curious that the last um, kind of stakeholder group you mentioned was the planet. How do you bring that position to life in terms of, um, in terms of improving or, 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 or supporting progress in terms of the planet? And how do you bring that to life here in Davos, where, yes, it's a big focus, but yeah. there's also so many companies who I think are also really focused on what they're doing in terms of improving the planet. I know. It, there's, there's a lot of things that we're doing under, um, again, under Santosh's leadership coming in as our global head of sustainability. But just starting from the broader topic of ESG and, and CSR, we have really deep roots in um, through our HCL Foundation mm -hmm. in India, which is which we've invested about 120 plus million um, since its inception, mm -hmm. and we've been doing amazing things to better the country of India, underserved communities, um, lo lots of work to do there around three, p three key, key pillars, of which environment is one of them, health care, education are others. Um, and, and so there's been a lot of work done under the foundation. And then just May in Davos, we are starting to, we found a cause that we don't, we have not seen anyone quite pick up yet. Mm -hmm. And that is around water and freshwater conservation. Okay. So in May, um, the HCL group launched an initiative called the Aquapreneur Innovation Initiative mm -hmm. in coordination with WEF. They are, they are involved, a number of their senior leaders are involved, and Uplink. And I don't know if you're familiar with Uplink, but Salesforce also um, is involved in Uplink to um, put out a call for entries mm -hmm. for entrepreneurs who are focused on tackling the challenge of freshwater conservation. Mm -hmm. 
Um, apparently, there was a record-breaking number of entrants, and tomorrow, um, I don't want to date this podcast, but <laughs> on Wednesday, January, what is that, 18th, um, we are going to be launching the 10 winners of the initial funding that we're committing, which is $15 million over several years. And we're going to hear about them at a, a press conference over at the Congress Center. And we're going to be interviewing some of them in our pavilion coming up. So, so water is one of the things that we're focused on as a cause. And then as an organization, of course, there are, number, there are a number of things that we are doing through the a, a development of a number of key targets, goals, and objectives. Like we're, we're 21 times water positive. I didn't really know the significance of that, but there is huge significance there. Mm -hmm. There's the, um, of course, all of the things around signing the um, carbon neutral net zero contract. There are so many things that we're committing to that you know others in, in our space are committing to as well. But we're, pr we're trying to put some additional teeth to that through the combination of Santosh coming in and also just through the commitment that our senior leaders are making all over the world. I think a lot of things we were doing, but we weren't tracking them and documenting them mm -hmm. and making so many forward-looking commitments. Mm -hmm. So we're, Santosh is looking at doing more integrated reporting with our um, annual report. And I think you're just going to see more of an aggressive um, forward-facing communication about our efforts. Mm -hmm. So I'm, pr I'm proud of it. I did not have as much um, exposure and experience to the world of sustainability. It was great to be here in May to get much more educated. And you know, having Santosh here has really helped me more fully understand all that needs to happen and all that we can do and the value of public-private partnerships as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot to do. Yeah, it's good to hear, though. And just in terms of telling that story, I'm curious. How do you see that changing? Because, you know, I can remember a time, and you probably do as well as a former journalist, when the written word reigned supreme. Um, now we're in a kind of an era where you know a lot happens in terms of short form videos. Yeah. Is that kind of a shift your um, organization is making, or as a B2B kind of marketing? Uh, function is 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 that less important for you? It, it's more important to okay. us to tell yeah. to tell to do more short form storytelling mm -hmm. for sure. Um, I'll be honest that historically speaking, um, the company I think took a more a bit more of a formal and conservative approach to organic social. Um, I don't think our voice was as human and accessible. And I always say B to H is what we are, business to human. Like forget the B to B talk. And there's so much influence that B to C has had. Uh, actually on, the way, on, on what my team is doing. Uh, and so we're, we're being playful every once in a while and having a little fun and like not taking ourselves too seriously. And there are time, there's a time and place for that, especially around our quarterly earnings. But when we did our brand launch, we experimented um, with doing some much more exciting things on Instagram. Mm -hmm. We're starting to look a bit more at TikTok. Maybe we're laggards in that way. I know that there are some B2B companies that are doing recruiting on TikTok. 
But what I'm actually most proud of at the moment is we've really transformed the way we do storytelling on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. We've got more than 4 million followers mm -hmm. to HCL Tech on, on LinkedIn, and it's growing every day, and there was a lot of growth over the when we did the brand transformation launch. But I love what we're doing. I'm proud of it. Um, more dynamic short form videos, and we're all, we've also transformed our website. I mean, we're in, it's a multi-stage transformation, but for, for example, for the World Economic Forum event, we are housing all of our, we're pre, we've previewed all of our content sessions starting last week. We're doing more real-time posting of all of our content sessions, like the panel discussion that I recorded this morning. You're gonna see that on our site later today. You know what it's like being in the world of journalism. I mean, immediacy is key, and amplification of things that are happening. That you know, There's 3,300 people here, but I want 4 million people mm -hmm. to, to get exposure to the things we're doing. So mm -hmm. I think that's where my journalism background is coming into play a little bit more, and it, it excites me, and I, I think the organization is really responding to it too, and they're proud, and we're seeing many more reshares. So I'm all, I'm all in on, I, I, a lot of people, there was a debate for a while on is organic social dead? I don't think so. Mm, okay, and it's interesting you mentioned LinkedIn. Beyond being more human mm -hmm. um, and more immediate, any other LinkedIn tips you can perhaps share? Because I think that growing your presence to four million, that's. Uh, that's pretty yeah, impressive. I th well, I think um, photography, instead of posting a tile with a quote in it, I think we are, we are finding, we've done a lot of evaluation of our posts, um, posts that have photography of our people, more casual posts of people interacting um, to support whatever the, the storyline is. I, it works so much better than just having a generic graphic Tile. And again, we're now we're now trialing. I'm sure you've seen the carousels that you can do. You can build in in LinkedIn. Yep. Again, these are not, you know, this isn't bleeding edge. But I, I feel like we're just trying to stay just much more modern and hip to trends. And the team was just showing me something that they saw on TikTok that they wanted to apply to what we're doing here in our pavilion. And they just showed me like a little 15 second clip. And it's great. It's like, I think we're just letting ourselves be more uh, of explorers, mm -hmm. I think, and, and priding ourselves in innovation, but not just for the sake of innovation. Because I think we're seeing, since we're doing so much analysis of what's working, it's like the team's just inspired to take it to the next level. And I think that's exciting. It's exciting to see your team really step up and, and, and I'm, I'm very open-minded about things. So I think that's, I, I think that's, it's been a nice recipe for a team here that um, went all in on this brand transformation. This was not an, a thing where there was there were 10 people in the brand team and we worked with this huge agency and they did the majority of the work. Like we did so much of this mm -hmm. in-house and I'm immensely proud of my team. And it is across the marketing organization. Mm -hmm. Everybody had a stake, everybody had a role in this. And, um, and it's just so exciting to you know see the fruits of your labor. It's, it's, it sounds like it's exciting to let go a little bit. I think, mm -hmm. I think everyone would empathize I, my with that. My mantra is like, do not take yourself too seriously. When you're in this space, I think just hearing B2B, sometimes that encumbers people and is a, a hindrance. And I think a lot of our newer folks 
they come out of school sometimes feeling like, well, I am now in B2B, I have to be more robotic and more careful about what I do. Mm -hmm. It's like, no, have some freedom. And we just, some of us had a, a, a small in-person get together, um, you know, with people coming together around the world who hadn't met yet because, you know, they've, we've been not traveling much. And just some of the ideas and thoughts from the younger generation. And I, 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 some, I stay somewhat relevant because I've got an 18-year-old and an, a 20-year-old, and they're always showing, like, chat GPT, of course. You know, my son yeah. knew about it before I did. But it's so great to take the learnings from the younger generation. And sometimes I say, I don't know if I get this. I'm old, so I'm gonna, but I'm going to let you explore it. And then I do a little bit of research on my own. I'm like, okay. The risk level is, you know, relatively low. Let's just see. Let's see what works. Yeah, absolutely. I think your. I think our time is up. Um, you have many appointments, no doubt, and uh, well, I think everyone does at Davos. Jill, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's really interesting to hear about what you're doing in terms of transforming marketing uh, at HCL Tech. We will be uh, watching your progress with interest. You should watch it supercharged. Yes. Yeah, I gave you that one there. <laughs> you did. That's that was it. too easy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Provoke podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers.